0: This is part 3 of The Horse and the Rider. If you haven't heard parts 1 and 2, start there. and the rider part three the escape as the sun rose peter hit 110 kilometers per hour on the southbound princes highway and punched the cruise control button there was a soft pink light in the air peter gazed out the windscreen at the 10,000 hectares of blank national park which crowded the little freeway ominously it was sullen and motionless and peter thought of all the cruel and casual violence that happened in it every day and was probably happening right now Snakes and foxes and huge spiders and birds, all killing and maiming each other and waiting for the day on which they would also die of their injuries and be eaten. He rolled one window down a touch and listened to the rushing air roar over the gap between glass and car. For some reason the sound reminded him of Back to the Future. He imagined being Marty McFly and he imagined his BMW was a heavy stainless steel DeLorean covered in time travel frost and he was traveling at 88 miles per hour and his destination was a charming high school with simple problems instead of whatever his destination was. He wound the window up just a little and the noise intensified. He imagined the sound of the ragged rushing wind was the crackle of electricity instead. He imagined he was on his way to play the guitar and have an adventure. He passed scenic routes and road houses and a handful of fast food chains from which people spilled out and into their cars. And it wasn't until he was south of Wollongong that the traffic slowed to a crawl and the soothing speed of the open road abandoned him. Utes and sedans and ten-year-old four-wheel drives crept out of side streets into Peter's path. He nudged forward. He could see school children in the backs of cars. They could see him as well and they stared with inscrutable faces. Peter wondered if they recognised him from the news. After some time, the traffic eased up. Peter felt his confidence return as the speedometer ticked upward. And as he allowed himself to be soothed by the hum of the RPMs, he failed to notice the line of police with illuminated batons waving people to the verge. Then he saw them, and he panicked. He swerved. The car found a side street, but its tyres screeched painfully. A puff of smoke filled the air. Sweat boiled out of Peter's paws. It became stifling. He looked around wildly to see if the police had noticed, but his view was blocked by the corner of a fence. He vomited a little and forced the acrid pulp back down. Another street appeared ahead and Peter rounded its corner as a siren went up from the highway, then another. His brain filled with terror. He was done. He knew. He had killed an old Greek man, accidentally, yes, but it was his fault. And now he'd run, and he'd found the end of the line in a shitty little street in a pathetic commuter suburb. The realisation was stinging. It was noble to run. But it seemed to Peter now that in his enthusiasm for flight, he'd forgotten how the flight of fugitives all too often ended. Not in a glorious and heavily armed shootout at Glen Rowan, but hungry, thin and cold, in a derelict lean-to at the back of beyond, helplessly surrounded and taken in without a whimper. It went without saying that such desperation and ignominy had no place in the broader narrative of Peter Quinnell Live's life. Injustice was the word for it. The vomit rose in his throat again and as it nudged the back of his tonsils, angrier and sourer than before, he realised that the sirens had receded into the distance. They were chasing someone else. Suddenly, the street was quiet again, suburban quiet. Peter felt a sudden and unprecedented enthusiasm for the muffled sprawl that surrounded him, the ticky tacky little crusting of white houses with black windows on polite little blocks, as mute and unwanted as barnacles on a breakwater. Houses designed to be nothing special that would, all the same, probably be there forever that had crouched on their quarter-acre blocks for half a century or longer and would crouch there longer still, simply because no one would tear them down. Peter had never cared for them before, but he loved them now. They were the homes of citizens, both hardworking and not, some of them the solid, uncomplaining masses towards whom the politicians waved when they waved towards the western suburbs of any of Australia's major cities, wishing to evoke a spirit of sensible dependability. Some of them were also the kind of citizen that politicians gestured towards to evoke a horrid other, an unaccountable vampire with a thirst for juice bottle bongs and honest tax dollars, or perhaps just an ominous uncertainty. All of them were here, united by directionless resentment and thriftiness. They saw no reason to smash up a perfectly good house. It didn't matter if the house had been built from cheap wood and plastic and wire in the 1960s, not when they kept out the rain and the bugs and a bit of the sun. They had wire screens that slammed in the summer heat and rolling screen shades and alcoves near the front doors where generations of sandals were piled upon their ancestors. Hot tears filled Peter's eyes. He pulled roughly at the door handle and launched out of it. The air was humid and the grass an earthy yellow. Cicadas droned around him. He spat a thick mouthful of saliva onto the concrete, then leant his forehead against the steering wheel and cried for a minute. When he stopped, he felt calmer. He tried to remember the mindset of the Peter Quinnell Live who'd sailed nonchalantly down the Prince's Highway just 45 minutes ago. It seemed a mindset worth striving for, considering the circumstances, a mindset both functional and attainable. There was simply no point in aiming for the mindset of the Peter Quinnell Live of a year ago, whose chief concern was basking in the glory of a 12th consecutive light entertainment presenter Packer Prize nomination. Or of a month ago, who still held faith in the dream that his handsome leather briefcase's storage capacity would someday soon be necessary to securely hold a stack of important documents delivered by a well-connected whistleblower for him to convert neatly into an award for fine journalism. Perhaps furthest of all, somehow, was the Peter Quinnell life of this time the day before yesterday, who'd not yet killed an elderly Greek man on a railway station platform. On Amelia, the office manager's first day on the job, the ratings were published. Strasbourg was number one, Cornell Live, number two. An oppressive silence hung over the newsroom and Amelia failed to notice it as she breezed in with a brisk cheeriness and a charming woven handbag over one shoulder. She made the rounds introducing herself. The people to whom she introduced herself responded in hushed monosyllables and shook their heads as much as possible to communicate to Amelia non-verbally that she should make herself quiet and still. Management were holed up in the boardroom, not to be disturbed, so she set up her desk space, a peace lily, a photo of herself and her boyfriend from when they went to an elephant sanctuary in Thailand, a cup of stationery. By 11am she'd performed all the time-killing tasks she could, so she strolled up to the boardroom door and raised her knuckles. With surprising elegance, a balding middle-aged man named Perry slid in between her knuckles and the door. His eyes glistened with distress. Bright beads of sweat congealed on his shiny dome. He shook his head pleadingly. Not to worry, Perry, Amelia declared cheerfully. I'm sure they won't mind. And Perry flinched so profoundly his fleshy skull crashed into the door. He moaned in pain. After making sure he didn't need the first aid kit, Amelia completed her planned knock on the boardroom door. There was no response. It's Amelia, the new office manager, she called out and tried the door handle. It was locked. She jiggled it. There was no response. Eventually, Amelia retreated to her desk and resorted to occupying herself by inventing mnemonics to remember her new co-workers' names. Perry, the sub-editor, was shaped like a pear. Jumpy Janice jostled stories around on the auto queue. Richard, the runner, had a bad case of rosacea. After she'd finished plotting out colleague name, role and attribute in an Excel spreadsheet, printed it and pasted it in a blind spot on the desk underneath the lower right corner of her computer monitor, she familiarised herself with the building's evacuation plan. From a deserted office she gathered the last three years worth of payroll binders and ascertained from the records within who was the union representative. She introduced herself to them and responded to their small talk with a frosty disdain she hoped would convey her distaste for organised labour. She called up the human resources chain to requisition a platter of pastries for the hungry executives and board members to snack on when they finally emerged from their meeting. And when it was delivered, she defended it with no-nonsense glares at the junior reporters and sub-editors who cast tender looks at them across the office. At 6pm, when the meeting room doors remained closed, she swept the pristine treats into a bin and left for the day. The next morning, she arrived at 7.30am to find the meeting room door was still closed. Amelia stared at it apprehensively. Certainly, it seemed impossible that the executives inside had stayed the night. That, at least, she felt, she thought, she could write off as impossible. But she was still troubled by the silence from the upper management of the company she'd been engaged by, and the feeling that something was wrong gnawed at her as she reordered stationery and corrected a misspelled form template. At 10am, it got the better of her and she stood up from her desk once more and avoiding the pleading gaze of Perry, Janice and Richard strode over to the meeting room door and knocked sharply on it. Hello, she called out. Hope I'm not interrupting anything. There was no reply, so she pushed on it. It opened maybe 10 centimeters before being forcibly slammed shut again. She pushed again but the door didn't give. It was as though someone was leaning on it from the other side. It's Amelia, she called out. The new office manager. Her offering was greeted by silence. She returned to her desk, where she sat staring fixedly at the closed door. She was a healthy, organised, contented person who enjoyed the challenges of work, but she had never worked for employers who hid from the people who worked for them. As she watched the door, she gnawed on a pen. She gnawed until it was evening, and the other office staff packed up their briefcases and backpacks and shuffled slowly towards the elevators. By 8pm, everyone had left. The boardroom doors remained closed. Amelia packed up her handbag and began to walk towards the elevator, but before she got to the doors, something made her turn back towards the boardroom. She approached furtively. She knelt down and pressed her ear to the door. Earlier, she'd heard nothing, but this time, crouched beside the door with one ear pressed against it, she heard a low murmur coming from inside. There were people in there. She knocked sharply on the door, and in an instant, the murmuring stopped. Amelia was unnerved by the sudden silence. What were the people inside hiding? She waited a moment, then called out, ''It's me, Amelia. I'm going home now.'' That night, she warmed a tub of supermarket minestrone and curled up on the couch to watch Brickies, a primetime reality show where contestants laid bricks to complicated plans under tough time constraints. On the show, there was a drama between a man called Alex and a woman called Pam. His line had gone out of plumb, and she'd told the judges. ''You should have told me,'' he told her on the screen. ''She's just playing the game by telling the judges and not telling me,'' he told the camera. She should have told me. In the morning, she woke up and returned to work, where the boardroom doors were still closed. A low murmur droned. She topped up the paper in the printers around the office and replaced the batteries in every clock. She gnawed on her pen. Abruptly, at the stroke of 11, the doors to the meeting room burst open and the top brass of five news spilled out. Judith Senyol was there, drawn and pale. So was the head of HR, Brent Peth and the chairman, as well as five or six greying men whom Amelia didn't recognise. She sat up straight in her chair and tried to give them a bright smile, but as they got closer her smile faltered. They were grim-faced and smelt of sweat and coffee. They looked at her as though she was almost nothing, and as she tried to squeeze out the words, good morning, I'm Amelia, one of the grey old men said to her, your mouth is blue. She glanced down at the ballpoint pen on her desk. She chewed right through it, ink puddled on the desk. She covered it with her hands and tried to look as though it wasn't an accident. I'm not sure if it's the look we want to be putting out there, the grey old man said. And when he said, out there, he looked at the glass door that led from the atrium into the 5 News office. First impressions count, he said, looking at Amelia, but speaking softly as though it was intended perhaps for one of the other grey old men. Why is your mouth blue, sweetheart? Brent Peth asked her. The managers stared at her. I, uh, Amelia started. I have blue mouth, she finished. It wasn't a disease. It's a disease, she told them, but I'm being brave and working through it. It's not contagious. There was a long pause as the old grey men stared at her curiously. Blue mouth, one of them ruminated. And just as suddenly as they'd appeared, they nodded at one another and dispersed. Amelia had met them, and now she had blue mouth. She worked silently and self-consciously in the 5 News office until the day after Peter Quinnell Live's disappearance, when Judith Senyol roared at her in a thick, wet voice to smile for a change. When she offered a begrudging half-grin, Judith assumed her blue tongue was in some way a jab at her recent misfortune and threw a cup of pens in her face. Amelia drafted her letter of resignation. After he'd caught his breath and wiped the vomit from the corners of his mouth, Peter gave some thought to how he'd continue his journey without the custom number plates that would be a dead giveaway to any passing highway patrols. There was no question that he needed new plates. Any patrol cop with one ear on the scanner would see his custom PQL-196 plates and put two and two together. His initials, PQL, and the year of his birth, 1969. He'd ordered PQL-1969 plates, but the final digit had been cut off due to government red tape. But how he could get his hands on new plates was a thornier matter. It would need to be a black market acquisition, Peter knew. Involving Service New South Wales was as good as walking into the local police station and turning himself in. He could steal some plates, and given the past 24 hours, it would be just one more charge against his name, and perhaps one so minor, relatively speaking, that the judiciary would be inclined to ignore it completely. A transgression so menial that to even acknowledge it would trivialise the more serious accusation of manslaughter, Peter thought. And the more he thought about it, the more certain he became. In a sense, he thought, it was a way of paying tribute to the seriousness of the crime. They used to say, in for a penny, in for a pound, he mused out loud. Then fell silent as he thought about how the value of a pound was more and more taken for granted these days. The value of money in the Facebook era, Peter mused and made a mental note to remember it if he ever again found himself in a pitch meeting. In the age of the internet, when sex is available at the swipe of a button and money is more electronic than ever, what does a pound mean? A small thrill fizzed up Peter's spine as he said the words. It felt good to switch into newsreader mode again, like pulling on an old T-shirt. The pound used to rule the world, and a penny was nothing to be sneezed at. But does today's generation really know what the precise value of either of these things is? It felt right. Peter knew that when it felt right, it usually was right, and that the best, and perhaps the only, way to pay respect to the kinds of rough-and-ready heartland values that made Australia great was to steal the number plates. He thought about taking the screwdriver from the car boot and turning the screws, and his stomach turned cold and he became light-headed. He couldn't do it. What if he got caught? What if, rather than being a borderline meaningless act in context, it became the straw that broke the camel's back? What if the judge threw the book at him? Nausea welled up again. What if they made an example of him? Peter Cornell Live, respected broadcaster, pillar of the community. What if the headlines read, this is rock bottom? He felt the vomit rise in his throat. A manslaughterer and now a thief? The moral decline of Western culture? What if they brought back the death penalty for him? He swung the car door open and heaved a gelatinous strand of drool onto the grassy verge. His eyes clouded over with water and he slumped back into the car seat, spent. He couldn't do it. As he realised he couldn't do it, a teenager on a pushbike rolled up alongside him. Do you have any weed? he asked. No, Peter panted. You look like shit, dude, the teen told him, and looked down the road in a way that seemed pointed to Peter. It gave him an idea. I can pay you, he told the teen, and the teen called him a pedo-fuck and rode away. Peter turned the ignition and the car revved like crazy. He put it in first and sped down the road after the teen, who looked behind him wildly and shouted in terror. Peter pulled alongside him and wound down the window and yelled, Not for that. I want you to steal some number plates and I'll pay you. He reached into the nearest valise and withdrew a fistful of $20 notes. I can pay you this, he hollered. The teen peeled off and stopped on the side of the street. Peter pulled over to the curb. How much you got? the teen asked him. Peter counted up the 20s. $160, he told the teen. I'll do it for 200, the teen said, and Peter told him he only had $160. He really had more, but it was a bargaining position. Okay, the teen said, but I want half now. Peter respected the teen's business acumen, so he forked over the $80. Be cautious, he said, and the teen told him to fuck himself and jumped back on his bike. He zipped through a reserve and was gone. Peter felt numb. He pinched the bridge of his nose hard and looked around for another burst of inspiration and his eyes landed on an ancient metallic blue Mitsubishi Magna parked in the rusting carport of the house nearest to him. What choice did he have? He had no choice. He climbed unsteadily from the car and crept around to the boot. He retrieved the screwdriver. It was a bright sunny day, no clouds. The sky was a brilliant blue. All the houses in the neighbourhood had their curtains flung open, except for the house which Peter approached, and he took it as a sign that the occupant was out, or maybe bedridden. He prowled into the carport and crouched down by the number plate and undid one screw, then the other, then slipped the screws into his pocket and tucked the plate under his arm. He circled round to the back of the car, the riskier side as it faced the street, and as he crab-walked through the carport, a shriek sounded from inside the house, then a rush of footsteps and the screen door to the carport open. Thanks for listening to The Horse and the Rider. It's written, read and produced by me, Max Laverne. I'd love to hear from you if you've been enjoying it. You can tweet at me, prawn underscore meat, or send me an email, maxlaverne at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a donation at kofi.com slash maxlaverne. If you want to share it with other people, I actually had a great idea. Uh, no one takes podcast recommendations seriously, so I was thinking that instead, what you could do is pick a friend and go for a drive with them, a 25-minute drive, and just play them a whole episode while they're in the car. If you live in Marrickville in Sydney, you could drive to Bankstown. If you live in Rathgar in Dublin, you could drive to Cabin Tealy. If you live in Signal Hill in Calgary, you could drive to the township of Janet. It's just an idea.